this sermon has eight points. And I uh, tried my best to get them all in in the early service and got four. Oh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish this sermon tonight. Do four to this morning, four tonight. Now, I said one time at my sermons I didn't have a one-point sermon. Lewis Barker said, I have several, I just don't know it, that I, that I go ahead and preach the others. And, but this is an eight-pointer, and I want to do four of them. And if you've got um, the nerve, you can come back and get the rest tonight. Now, the book of Malachi begins with a claim of God and that claim is found right up front in verse 2 chapter 1 I have loved you and that really is the burden of this prophecy and everything that follows should be understood in light of that it reveals the perpetual nature of God and is what G. Campbell Morgan calls the wail of wounded love. I have loved you. But he moves quickly from the claim to the complaint. For even though God is by nature love, and He loves us with a perpetual love, that doesn't mean that God just ignores our sin, winks at it. It doesn't mean that God does not expose and indict our sin. As a matter of fact, it is in the fact that He loves us with a perpetual love that we have the guarantee that God will not pass lightly over our sin. Now these folks, uh, they were real happy about the claim. They weren't too excited about the complaint. They were open to the claim. But nobody likes to listen to a complaint. In light of that truth, I thought I would test that out. So I got on the phone and I called a large department store in Dallas. A cheery voice answered and I said, I, I identified myself and I, I said, I've got a credit card from your department store along with 4,000 others. And, and, uh, and I, everything was just going great until I dropped the bomb. I said, I've got a complaint. She said, you've got a complaint. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, hold on. I'll need to transfer you to the customer relations department. Short pause, another cheery voice. May I help you, sir? I said, I've got a complaint. You've got a complaint. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, hold on. I need to transfer you to Mr. So-and-so's desk. Longer pause. Not so cheery voice comes on. How can I help you, sir? I've got a complaint. You live in Dallas or you live outside of Dallas? I live in Oklahoma. Hold on. I need a trans... It just, just went on and on like that. Convince me that, you know, uh, the claim is great. The complaint is not so great. And so God has a complaint. And as soon as the complaint, there is the counter. And the response of God's people is, if you've got a King James, it says... Well, wherein, and that word wherein appears seven times in this little book, or how do we do this? Or, I mean, how can you say this about us? That's the idea. That's the counter to the complaint. 
It is the prophecy, prophecy of a stultified people and a sincere God. It is the picture of a people who think they're all right where they're all wrong. Wherein have we this? How can, we, how can you say that we have done this? And it's significant that G. Campbell Morgan says that none of the messages of the other minor prophets fit more exactly the modern day than does Malachi. In other words, this book is as fresh today as when the ink was wet upon the parchment. Same claim, same complaints, same counters. Now I may uh, be totally off base but I have a feeling that before God can bless a people in revival, that people is going to have to deal honestly with what has wounded his love. It, I may be totally off base, but it seems to me that before God can bless in revival, his people are going to have to deal honestly with his indictment that has wounded their love. So I want you to do that with me today. I mean, at least be honest with us, be honest with ourselves, and let's take a look at the complaints of God. The first is found in verse 6. It's the complaint of profanity. Look at it. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my respect? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised thy name? Now the profanity that he indicts is not cursing, really, in essence. It's really the profanity of calling God Father and giving Him no honor, of calling Him Master and having no fear of Him. That's the profanity. It's the profanity of taking God's name without taking the honor that's due Him and calling Him Master and having no fear of Him. The word profanity means, literally in the Hebrew, it means away from the temple. And it was used with reference to those things that were no longer sacred but commonplace. It's Sunday noon, and Bobby's not eating his lunch. He's just kind of tracing around in the food with his fork in deep thought. And after a while, he looks up and he asks his parents, why don't we call God by his name? And his parents say, what are you, what are you talking about, Billy, Bobby? And he said, well, why don't we call God by his name? And mother said, well, I don't understand. He said, well, on Sunday, we say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we don't ever call him that. Now that question might be more serious than it appears on the surface. There was a time when God's name was hallowed. And a Jew would never speak that name, lest some evil might befall the speaker. And if a scribe was writing the name of God and his quill went dry. He wouldn't dip it in ink and finish. He'd just finish with a dry quill. And if a king came in and addressed the scribe while he was writing the name of God, he wouldn't even acknowledge his presence. 
Now, any other nation can call their gods by their names whenever they please because they were not real gods. They didn't call the real God by his name, lest calling his name would unleash a th- the power of a thousand thunderstorms. His name was hallowed. And so you say, he said, you take my name and you call me Father and you call me Master and you have no fear of me. And the only honor I am accorded is in your words and in your creeds. You take my name in vain. And that word vain means empty and lifeless, without a sense of urgency. And this profanity that he indicts here is, watch this, listen, is the profanity of a mild religion. This is what Eldon Trueblood says about it in his marvelous little book, Foundations of Reconstruction. Listen to this. The third commandment does not condemn those who fail to believe. It condemns those who believe and do nothing about it. What is dangerous is not intellectual atheism, which is unpopular, but mild religion, which is very popular indeed. What is dangerous is not a frank rejection of the Judeo-Christian faith, which has been the chief inspiration of Western civilization for almost 2,000 years, but the acceptance of that faith in a meaningless form. And this is to take God's name in vain. It is to give lip service to moral standards, but not to take them seriously. The sin lies not in rejecting God's name, but in taking His name without a sense of conviction and urgency. It is to express a faith, but without enthusiasm. Are you hearing me? For the real profanity takes place not in some bar where His name is interspersed with sewer talk, The real profanity takes place in church where the words of songs and prayers and sermons are not really meant. We take His name in vain when we call Him Lord, but we do not offer our lives to Him in obedience. And we take His name in vain when we declare our faith in Him, but we don't get excited about it. We take His name in vain when we say we love Him and don't care if the world goes to hell. We take His name in vain when we call ourselves Christians and there's an obvious difference between our profession and our practice. You think God has some complaint. And so Vance Havner says, when I was a kid growing up, we got up early on Sunday morning and did the necessary chores and, and hitched the horses to the wagon and dressed up in our Sunday best and rode the wagon an hour to church where we sat on hard pews and in our heart we praised God from whom all blessings flow and gave thanks for His blessing. He said, now we get up late. We sleep late on Sunday. We drive 10 minutes in air-conditioned cars to church where we sit on cushioned pews, listen to some paid soloist sing Art thou weary, art thou languid? And we wonder if the preacher's going to be through by 12. You think God's got a complaint? The second complaint of God is the complaint of sacrilege. And it's found in verse 8. Read it with me. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Now what is happening is that these people are bringing 
lambs from the flock that are sick and blind and crippled. And they're offering those to God. When the Mosaic law was explicit and required that the lamb brought to God was to be without spot or without blemish, the finest of the flock, and they lost that sense of urgency, and they lost that sense of, religion, of worship, and so they brought to God that which they didn't really want or need or of no value to them. Now they wanted to offer something to God because they were pleased to maintain the form and the appearance and the image was so important to them, not the essence. And the sin of sacrilege has two implications. It means that I want to offer to God that which is of no value to me, therefore, requires no sacrifice of me. Are you hearing me? The problem with that is that God measures the offering not by the size of the offering, but by what is left after the offering is given. The, the, the widow's mite is a perfect example of that. Now, preachers are prone to get discouraged and get negative. I know that. I talked to a discouraged pastor not long ago. He said, Gerald, it seems to me that my, my church is really, you know, really not really that committed to God. He said, Saturday I was down, to, down at the church building. He said, I was kind of going over my sermon and I was praying and I was discouraged. And he said, I was kind of walking through the kitchen and the fellowship hall. He said, I looked over there and there was the stove. One old burner was burn out and the door was falling off. He said, somebody gave that stove to the church because they didn't need it or want it anymore. He said, I looked around in Fellowship Hall and he said, all the furnishings in our Fellowship Hall were brought as an afterthought by people who didn't want to throw them away so they brought them to church. And he said, it seems to me that it just reflected the whole attitude that was present. That what I want God to have from me, I want it to cost me nothing. Now I know there are a lot of people who are sacrificing a lot for God, but there are a lot of people who are just offering to God what they neither want nor need. You know what I'm talking about. I got a little extra time today, this week, so I'll go to church. I got a little extra money this month, so I think I'll give to the church. They need it down there, but I hope they don't get in the habit of expecting it from me. Let me ask you something, folks. Let me say something from my heart of hearts. What I'm asking of you in this revival meeting is not the night, not this night where you don't have something else to do, you will come. I'm asking you to give to God that which you would want and like to keep for yourself. And the second implication of this sin of sacrilege is this. That, it's that it, is, it reflects that we want to give to God what we'd be ashamed to give to somebody else. And that reflects on our feeling toward God. See, 
For he said, why don't you take what you want to take me to take? Why don't you want, why don't you give what you want to give to me to your governor and see how he likes it? See? And the things that we would offer to God, we'd be ashamed to offer to someone else. That's what his implication is. You know what I'm talking about? For you see, the only way that you and I can really value, can really judge what we offer to God is when we compare it to what we offer to everything else or everyone else. I think this is a legitimate question. What kind of a marriage would you have? if the communication that went on in your marriage was like the communication between you and the Father. What kind of parent would you be? What kind of relationship would you have if that relationship was like in the same kind the relationship that you cultivate between you and God? That's what he's asking. That's a legitimate question. You think God's got a complaint? And there's a third complaint. It's found in verse 10. Now, there are myriads of ways to translate verse 10. And there are several ways to interpret what he's saying here. I, I think, personally, that G. Campbell Morgan's exposition of Malachi is the best I have ever read. And he says that verse 10 is the complaint of greed. And he says the greatest complaint of greed against greed or about greed in this entire book. Notice what he says. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Now, Morgan says that this is what the author is saying, that Malachi is saying, or God speaking through the prophet, is this that the only reason these people who do this work for God, the only reason they do this work is for what they can get out of it, for the reward that's in it. And the implication is, you tell those priests that they'll no longer get paid for what they're doing, they'll no longer be rewarded for what they're doing, and see how long they keep on doing what they're doing. Wow! What God is saying is this, that the basic reason his people serve him is because of the reward or the benefit that it is to them. And there is an ulterior motive in everything they do. Every offering they bring, every gift they offer, every deed they do, there's an ulterior motive in it. What will it bring back to me if I do it? And you can just hear this wail of wounded love. And you can just hear God saying, is there anybody, just one, who will just love me for me? Is there just one who will serve me for the sheer joy of serving me? I used to travel a lot and I was gone a lot and so while feeling guilty while I was gone I went and bought presents and I brought presents home I mean I could go to Lubbock 60 miles away I'd bring a present you know <laughs> not not quite that bad and I bring suitcases from northwest of trinkets and gifts and stuff home to my children I got to notice them and when I got off the plane, first word was, what did you bring me? You know, <laughs> before any 
hugs and glad you're home, Dad, and man, we missed you kind of thing. It's like, what'd you bring me? I had an idea. I wonder if, uh, <clears throat> I wonder if it's, well, you know what I was wondering. And I just hear God's heartbeat in this passage, and it's this, like Mark, like the song that he sang a while ago. Is there just anybody who will just love me for me? Is there just anybody who will serve me for the sheer joy of serving me? And we've heard Job's cry a long time, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. And we misquote that. And we have him say this, which is wrong. We have him say, though I die, though it kills me, I'm going to keep on serving God. And the implication is that there will be a reward for me beyond this life. That's the implication. That's not what Job's saying at all. For well, that word slay in the Hebrew goes to the very depths of the fact of his being. And what Job is saying is this, though I never see him on the throne, though I am cut off from his grace and blotted out of his book, I'm still going to serve God for the sheer joy of serving God. How God must long for that attitude. You ever wondered why? Jesus told folks not to tell about the miracles he performed. You ever wonder why? I see you hadn't done a lot more thinking about that than the first crowd here. This is yes, this is no. You ever wondered why Jesus would perform a miracle and he'd say, don't tell anybody? You remember when Jesus performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? It's the only miracle found in all four Gospels. It was a powerful miracle. And as soon as he performed that, you know what they wanted to do? They wanted to make him their bread king. We want to make you king. And Jesus said, in essence, I'll have none of that. Because I don't want to be king. Just because you want bread on the table. I want to be king in your life because I am king. And the reason why he would perform these miracles and he said, don't tell anybody, don't spread the word because he wanted people to follow him just because of who he was. And he wanted people to love him not because they could, he, they could be guaranteed that he'd heal their diseases and raise their dead in, his, in their presence. He wanted people just to follow him because they love to follow him. You think God's got a complaint? And I heard the old story about the guy who was a multimillionaire, young man, inherited a fortune. He got paranoid about it. And he thought, well, I'll never find anybody to fall in love with who will marry me just for me. They all, they're for my money. So what he did, he put his money in trust, and he moved and, I, and divorced himself from that identity and from that wealth. And he started to work as a common laborer in a foreign town, foreign city. And he met a young woman and they fell in love. And they were about ready to get married. And he broke the news. Good news, huh? He broke the news. I'm a multimillionaire. I'm, I'm, I have a fortune. And she was hurt. She said, why did you deceive me? Why did you keep that? Why weren't you honest with me? His answer was, I was afraid there wasn't one person in the world who would just love me for me. There is a fourth complaint that I'm through. It's found in verse 13. Let's read it first. 
you also say, my, how tiresome it is. You ever heard that? Now let me say parenthetically right here, let me just digress a little bit. Anytime you try to serve God for any other reason, motivated by any other motive than just because of your love for God and love to serve Him, it gets old, folks, and it causes burnout. And anybody who is trying to serve God for any other reason than the sheer love they have for God and the sheer response to God's love for them, the person, it, he, it's, it's the most bore, tiresome. And he says, and you disdainly sniff at it. It sounds like what happens when the nominating committee comes around at the end of the year and asks you to do some, serve, do, do a, you know, some work in the church and you go, me? Like, you've heard that sniff, haven't you? No, I've heard that sniff. Whoa, not me. He says, and you disdainly sniff at it, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? Now, here's the, here's the, here's the complaint. Are you listening? It is the complaint that we have allowed ritual to replace reality. We have let the mechanics of a dead religion replace the meaning of a living faith. And with one voice, the prophets cry, I want mercy and not sacrifice, and I want knowledge of God and not burn offerings. Well, you see, what had happened was that they had replaced this knowledge of God, this communion with God, by, with, with this ritual they went through. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. And they did the right things. They mumbled the right phrases and they whispered the right songs, but there was no communion between them and God in a personal way. And religion had become simply a matter of ritual. You know what I'm talking about. Coming to church, going through the motions, saying the right words, mumbling the verbiage, singing the songs, no personal relationship with the living God. It's easy to do that. It's easy to replace reality with ritual. We do it all the time in the lesser things. You know why we shake hands? You ever wonder why we shake hands? We do something, we do that every day, shake hands. You know where that came from? It came from the ancient Babylonians. Babylonians. It came from ancient Babylon. It seems that when a king, a new king was being inaugurated, he'd walk over to this stone idol and he'd put his hand in the hand of that stone god and there was supposed to be some kind of a transference of power from the idol to the man. That's where it all started. And in the Middle Ages, the knights shook hands so that they could show they didn't have any weapons. And so we just do that over and over and over. We don't even know what it's all about. We just do it because it's a ritual. You ever wonder why we give the keys to the city to visiting dignitaries? We go through all this pomp and circumstance. You know where that all started? It happened in a, it started in the Middle Ages where they had these walls around these cities and, and they'd give this dignitary was coming, they'd give him a key so they wouldn't have to get up late at night and let him in. And, and so we give these keys to the city 
And, and it's just a ritual we go through. And something like that happened to the religion of ancient Israel and into your religion and mine. It became a matter of going through the motions. It's a burden to us, isn't it? We do it because we know we ought to, but we don't like it. Well, what's the answer to that? I heard about a little girl, 14 years old, who said goodbye to her mother one morning and said, I'll see you tonight, and went off to school. Her mother didn't see her that night. It was two and a half years before she saw her again. Her parents, when she didn't come home, quit their jobs, took all the money they had saved and began a nationwide search for their missing daughter. And when they ran out of all their money, they borrowed all the money they could from their friends. And they spent two and a half years looking for their daughter. And finally one day a person told them that they saw her in Georgia and identified her from a picture they had seen on TV. And they got in their car and they went to Georgia and they found her. You know what she said? She said, I didn't want to go to school that day, Mother. And when I got to school, I found that I had enough money to get a bus ticket to Georgia. And every mile I went away became more difficult for me to come back and face you. And every mile I went away became easier not to ever come back. You, you remember those phone calls that you'd get, somebody'd hang up, no answer? Th that was me. And she said, Mother, I wrote you thousands of letters that I never mailed. And while this little 14-year-old girl was running from her parents, they were running after her in love. Now the complaints of God are not to make you feel guilty. And they're not fodder that the preacher uses to gun some of you down, even though you may feel like that. The complaints of God are so that you'll be still and discover His love. Let's pray. Our Father, for an honest, forthright, vulnerable, open heart, and quest, search, we pray. And God, in the light of your love for us, perpetual and unending and unconditional, we know that there are those things about which the prophet preached about each of us. Forgive us. We repent. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray.